Today, let's talk about why doctrine matters. I know, it's going to sound dull, but I promise you, it's not. Because everybody believes something and there are consequences to what they believe. Whether people declare it or not, and write it down, and this is my doctrine and all that, everybody believes something. The brave thing is to declare it and live it, and then let one's living be its own argument for the merit of one's beliefs. But for the past couple hundred years, conventional wisdom has targeted the doctrines of faith as if you can get rid of it without replacing it with some other kind of faith. As if you can put it down as narrow without narrowing in on something else. So let's look at beliefs, a doctrine, in light of the stories we try to tell in books and movies and art. Let's go. All right, so what kind of books and movies do you like? Do you like happy endings? Do you like dark turns? All right, so think about this. One of the big debates over the centuries were whether or not art, like a novel or a painting, should be realistic or idealistic. Should you write and paint things the way they are? Or should you write and paint things the way you think they ought to be? All right, so the first one is realistic, second one is idealistic. When telling a story where everything is just as it should be, a tone of condescending moralism can creep in, and it can belittle your audience. This was the criticism of novels written in the early 19th century. Some authors wrote about what they wanted to see in the world rather than what they actually did see. Now, listen to this. This criticism is fair. It's a fair criticism especially for a Christian who believes we live in a moral universe already. Think about it. The most honest observations of the world don't need pushy moralism to reflect the bright stars of beauty against the dark sky of suffering. So, the Enlightenment, though, this is what happened. In the Enlightenment, in the 18th and 19th centuries, they took a hard stand against the church and its doctrine, as if it needed to be silenced rather than tuned up. You know, people get annoyed with moralistic stories or moralistic paintings, and they dismiss it entirely rather than helping people become better at telling the story. So the Enlightenment made reason, then, the sole credible authority of truth and thought. Doctrines of the church were to be regarded in light of reason and not vice versa. Sometimes even basic commitments of faith were targeted as limiting and even oppressive. Art began to reflect these same, same sentiments, often tearing down church traditions and ideals. The French and Russian authors began to rise in popularity, writing with dark realism, reflecting human frailty, where human beings are depicted more honestly in their mysterious complexity. That's a good thing. Again, so some, in some ways, this movement to realism was a healthy corrective to church doctrine, which was becoming too moralistic in teaching and in tone. So you could kind of see that coming. Rather than regarding human nature courageously in the depth of its depravity, church doctrine had become kind of shallow, as if sin only needed to be managed as if human nature needed to be improved rather than transformed. So, let's take a look at what has happened since then. 
since the Enlightenment now as a result of kind of hemming everything around in around uh, reason. Thought leaders now suggest that people may seek truth but not actually find it, which is ridiculous. I mean, you're, you're allowed to be a seeker of truth, but we're not allowed to be finders of it. They condemn art and literature which draws conclusions. Most schools of thought today consider uncertainty to be the only honest view of things. It's kind of cynical, really. The trend among our scholars and teachers is that art should only show the audience what is and not what ought to be. But this perspective is also a doctrine. Ha <laughs> ha, surprise. Ironically, those who say we ought not preach doctrine are themselves preaching doctrine. You cannot say what we ought not do without also, also suggesting what ought to be done. You simply cannot make statements or arguments or even mere observations without putting your thumb on the scale, without some appeal to presupposed ideals and assumptions you wish to guide thought and creativity. As for the critics who single out re religious doctrine as narrow, my kids would say, whenever you point the finger at somebody, you have three more fingers pointing back at you. So, the church can't be scapegoated as, as though they're just foisting morals. I know that at a time, at a certain time, there was this drift to moralism. But anytime you have a statement that makes a claim to truth, you're making a doctrinal statement. So the more honest view of doctrine is that everyone has one. Everybody has doctrine. The better question then is, whether one's doctrine lines up with the principles that lead to human flourishing, the kind of freedom that leads to healthy thoughts and action and relationships over time. That's the better question. I think it helps to think of one's doctrine, that is one's tradition, like a lens. Just kind of picture yourself looking through corrective lenses for a minute. You know, maybe you wear... Maybe you wear some uh, reading glasses and it helps, or maybe you have astigmatism and you've got a prescription. Well, that's, that's kind of like the role of doctrine. It's not just something to look at, but something to look through, like a corrective lens. John Wesley noted several lenses through which we see the world. It's come to be known as Wesley's quadrilateral. Now, let me just list those four for you. Quadrilateral, quad, that's four. So what are the four lenses? Here are the four. Scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. All these are things we look through. And not just that. So, in the Reformed tradition, the goal is to let Scripture speak for itself. So, we've got a tradition, a lens, that says something about Scripture. And that is, it has authority. So, that means reason, experience, and even our tradition that makes Scripture our authority is second to the voice of Scripture itself. As the Bible orders our thought and actions, we can see our tradition, experience, and reason more clearly. So the doctrines of the Reformed tradition of Calvin, Luther, John Knox, and others like them, they aim at ordering life according to the Word of God. You and I are going to be something, so, you know, in terms of doctrine, so it's best to go ahead and declare it, to own it, to live it. In so doing, we make a commitment to live in a certain direction, testing its worth in real time. Rather than suspending judgment, we take a stand. Rather than holding back in cowardice, we weigh in. 
rather than endlessly circling the cul-de-sac of options and opinions, we set out on an adventure, as the Hobbit says. So, you don't live your doctrine any more than you live in a hallway. Think about that for a minute. You know, as if the goal of the Christian life were just to find common ground on, you know, everywhere with everyone. C.S. Lewis describes it in Mere Christianity using this image of a hallway. He says this. Now, this is kind of a lengthier reading here, but just hang in there. It's good stuff. It's all built around this image of a hallway. He says this. I hope no reader will suppose that Mere Christianity is here put forward as an alternative to the creeds, that is the doctrine, of the existing communions, or that is a denomination. If a man could adopt it in preference to congregationalism or Greek orthodoxy or anything else, as if. Mere Christianity is more like a hall out of which doors open to several rooms. If I can bring anyone into that hall, I shall have done what I attempted. But it's in the rooms, not in the hall, that there are fires and chairs and meals. The hall is a place to wait in, a place from which to try the various doors, not a place to live in. For that purpose, the worst of the rooms, whichever that might be, is, I think, preferable. And above all, you must be asking which door is the true one, not which pleases you best by its paint and paneling. In plain language, the question should never be, do I like this kind of service? But are these doctrines true? Is holiness here? Does my conscience move me towards this? And when you've reached your own room, be kind to those who have chosen different doors and those who are still in the hall. If they're wrong, they need your prayers all the more. And if they are your enemies, then you're under orders to pray for them. That's one of the rules common to the whole house. I love the way Lewis makes these distinctions, but then he layers it with heaping helpings of generosity. So let's tie that to our EPC reform tradition for a final point, and then we're done. The EPC denomination is broadly evangelical in some respects, with a big hallway of welcome. Our motto, which ranks some things as essential and others as non-essential, creates a winsome, really compelling ethos wherein many people from various traditions and backgrounds may feel they have access. But let us not neglect our own rooms, fires, and furniture in this house of faith. Our Reformed tradition has a great contribution to the breadth of Christian faith. Living it out in all its strength continues to bring a healthy correction to false doctrines that can creep into the broader church. We must understand our own creed and doctrine and live it credibly. It's in living our commitments and all their consequence that they become compelling or repelling. So finally this, especially as officers of the church, we must study, know, and live these great Reformation commitments, ordered under the sovereignty of God, informed by the scriptures, enlightened by grace through faith, and applied as a priesthood of all believers stewards and champions of the gospel. So officers, you're the standard bearers of the church. Know our doctrine.